everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Let me begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever posted something on social media regarding a difficult circumstance that perhaps you were facing in life or a trying situation, perhaps either because you were wanting people to know about what was happening in your life, or perhaps you were actually listing it as a prayer request, hey, pray for me because this is going on. And as you put that out into the ethos of the social media world, you may have seen that comment section began to fill up with words like sending thoughts and prayers for you, or perhaps even the praying hands emoji dominated the comment box on your social media. And when we see that, it feels nice, right? It's nice to know that people are thinking about us, that they're praying for us. And it may be a little bit of a weird pastor thing, but have you ever actually gone through those comments and thought to yourself, I wonder how many of those people are actually praying for me? How many of those people who say, I'm praying for you, are actually praying for me? And to be honest, I never really used to think about that when I would go through and look at some of the different comments uh, that people would post on my social media. However, I had a situation occur few years back when I did a similar thing. I posted a situation that was difficult I was going through on Facebook, and a whole bunch of people start posting, we're praying for you. And I had one friend in particular say, hey, Nick, praying for you. And I happened to see this friend about a week later, and I was just so grateful that he had stopped and taken time to pray for me. I looked at him, I said, hey, man, thank you so much for praying for me. And he looked at me, deadpan, and said, praying for what? And I was like, dude, (laughs) you literally just not less than a week ago posted on my social media account that you were praying for me. And he said, essentially, sorry, man, you know, that's just something I tend to post on people's accounts when I see they need prayer. And so is it any wonder then with experiences like that or other experiences when it comes to praying for others that words like thoughts and prayers have become so feckless in our culture? And maybe that's not a situation you experience, but maybe you've had this. Maybe you've been talking with someone, and they've been sharing with you about something that's going on in their life, and they either ask you at that moment, hey, will you pray for me, or you offer to pray for them. And you turn around, and not 30 seconds later, having left that conversation, have completely forgotten totally about your promise to pray for them. Of course, it happens to all of us from time to time, and it's not because it's necessarily malicious or evil intent. Heck, even happens to pastors from time to time. And I know some of you are probably thinking, oh my gosh, have I asked Pastor Nick or Pastor Jason to pray for something, and they totally forgot about it? We try not to. We take your prayer requests seriously, but sometimes somebody asks me, hey, Pastor Nick, will you pray for me? And I say, yes, and I turn around and see a kid rollerblading through our lobby, being chased by another kid with a marker, and the thought of praying for that person immediately flies out of my brain. And so the question this morning I want to pose to you is this. Why is it that it's oftentimes so much easier to offer the appearance of praying for someone 
while it's so much more difficult at times to actually follow through and pray for them. Now, personally speaking, I sometimes struggle with knowing exactly how or what to pray for somebody. For example, let me just say somebody came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Nick, I lost my job. Will you pray for me? And I have no other information other that, other than the fact that they've said they've lost their job and will you pray for me? And I respond, of course, certainly I will be praying for you. But as I go to pray for them, a whole bunch of different questions begin to turn over my mind about the situation. For example, is God using this situation as an opportunity to build faith in this person, to help them grow spiritually? So should I pray that they grow spiritually? Or what if this particular individual managed their finances not very well? And so this is an opportunity for them to grow in that area. Should I pray for that? What if this individual was fired unjustly from their place of employment? Should I get down on my knees and begin to plead for the wrath and the justice of God in this situation? Or what if God is wanting to bless them with a better job that offers more pay? Should I pray in that moment that God pours out his blessings on this person? Or what if their marriage was really struggling because of this job and constantly being away? Should in that moment, should I thank God for all the time they now have to be able to spend together and work on their relationship? Now, of course, this morning, I joke. And I use humor to try and highlight a bigger point of emphasis that oftentimes when we are invited into the circumstances of life to pray for others, those circumstances can be very complex, nuanced. They are often very broken situations, situations that are extremely painful where we find ourselves not necessarily knowing how or what to say in that moment. And so for me, sometimes it's just easier to say, yes, I will pray for you, rather than actually knowing how or what to pray for that individual. Now, I know you guys are all extremely mature Christians in your faith, and you would never, never, never admit to running into that problem, right? I'm the only one here who has ever struggled with that issue. Of course not. I mean, if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, if you've professed faith in Jesus for any amount of time, you know that there have been times and encountered different situations where you haven't been sure exactly how or what to pray for an individual. And as we said earlier, there's a lot of different reasons that that happens. Maybe for some of us, like we talked about earlier, it's simply because we are so busy all the time. We run incredibly busy lives, and sometimes not maliciously or with evil intent, we just forget to be able to pray. And so in that situation, maybe the answer is just simply we need to be more intentional about praying for people. However, more often than not, I find that for a lot of people, this awkwardness or this growth in the area of being able to pray for one another person, praying for one another is often due to the fact that either we haven't had somebody properly model for us what it looks like to pray for others. Sometimes it can be incredibly awkward as well, especially in social settings, to pray out loud for another individual. There are people who are afraid to pray for others because they fear that they're going to say the wrong thing. What if I pray something that's not theologically correct? What if I pray the wrong thing and offend this person? 
And I would say for others, there is a, at times a lack of faith to believe that our prayers actually matter when we pray for other people. And this is something that I don't want to make light of because I know I've experienced this in my own life and I know that there are those here this morning that have experienced that as well. That perhaps there has been some, a situation or a circumstance in your life for, that you have prayed so fervently for somebody else. God, please, please God, move in this situation. And yet, it just seemed that you were shouting at the sky that nothing changed. And in those moments... It can begin to create doubt in our faith. We can begin to wonder if when we pray for others, does it really even matter? And so we say to people, hey, I'll be praying for you. More in a, a, a position to offer comfort to their heart rather than because we actually believe that our prayers are going to make a difference. And so if that is you this morning, if you've ever at any point in your life, for the reasons I've talked about or other reasons not mentioned, have wondered or struggled how or what to pray for others. The good news is you're not alone, church. For as long as there has been prayer in human, in human history, I'm sure there have been people who have wrestled with this issue. And specifically, if we look back at the ancient church of Ephesus, there were people at this church who were wrestling with how and what to pray for others. And so the Apostle Paul, in this verse that we're going to look at today, models for them in prayer, and for us this morning, what it looks like to pray for other individuals. And based on Paul's writings this morning, you are going to walk away, we together are going to walk away with a blueprint on what it looks like to pray for other people, regardless of what the circumstance or situation may be. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, pray for my cat, it's you want to tell them, I don't pray for cats, they're of the devil. Or if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need prayer for a chronic illness or something that's more painful going on, we're going to walk out of here with a blueprint of how to pray for others. So let's turn, if you have your Bibles, either a physical Bible or you have it on your phone, we'll have the verses on the screen as well. But let's turn to chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians and discover together this morning what it is that God teaches through the Apostle Paul about this very important issue on our spirituality of prayer. And so as you turn to Ephesians, let me give you some background quickly on what is happening in this book. Because the book of Ephesians is really two tales in one letter. You have two different stories that are happening in the background as this letter is being written. On one hand, you have the Apostle Paul, who we know from history wrote the letter to the churches in Ephesus somewhere around AD 62 while he was under house arrest in Rome. Now we know historically that Paul, even though he was under house arrest, still had quite a bit of freedom. He was able to publicly proclaim the gospel and still preach Jesus to those who were listening. But we also know that this was not an easy circumstance for the apostle either. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, in fact, just a few verses before the verses we're going to get to today, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, Please do not be discouraged because of my suffering. And so Paul says, I am suffering. And what is this suffering that Paul's talking about here? What is it that he was facing that was so challenging? In order to understand that, we have to go back even further to one of Paul's earlier letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. 
And in 2 Corinthians, he begins to outline some of these struggles that he was dealing with in the ministry. And as Paul is describing this, if you ever think you're having a bad day at work, or teenagers, if you think you've got a teacher that's being too hard on you, listen to what the Apostle Paul had to go through. He said that I, there were five separate occasions where he received 39 lashes. There were three times when he was beaten with rods. One time when he was pelted with stones. Three times he was shipwrecked. One time, because of those shipwrecks, he spent an entire day and night and in the water in open ocean. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I watch enough Shark Week to know that if I'm in open water for more than 24 hours, I'm praying, God, just take me. I don't even want to be out here. And yet the Apostle Paul summarizes all these sufferings and trials and tribulations he's going through by saying that there is no place that I can turn in life where I don't face danger. When I go out on the road on my missionary journeys, there's danger from robbers and thieves. When I'm in the city, there's danger from Jewish officials and from Gentile officials. Everywhere I turn, there's danger. And so the Apostle Paul, as we look at his life, we begin to understand that he is facing circumstances that are worthy of a lot of thoughts and prayers. And so we have the Apostle Paul, but then we also have the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus was struggling with their own difficulties as well. They had uh, been planted by the Apostle Paul and were thriving for a time until some heretics and some false preachers began to infiltrate their ranks. And the church at Ephesus went through a very painful split where half the denomination or congregation left the church to follow these heretics. So I want you just for a moment to put yourselves in their shoes. We'll divide a line right down the middle, okay? You guys are the Christians because you love the Broncos. You guys are the heretics because you love the Packers. And this side decided to leave the church. Now just imagine for a moment people that you have spent years doing life alongside, where you have served together, where you have loved, where you've prayed, where you've cried, where you've done life together, they're gone. They're gone, following a heresy in the church that was happening at that time. And so we see also, not only is Paul suffering, but this church in Ephesus was struggling as well. And as we begin to understand the challenges of these people, we get a backdrop on how Paul is going to pray for others. So let's see what he says here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. He says that, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness in God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we may hope or imagine, according to the power that is in work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout the generations forever and ever. And so as we look at how the Apostle Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesus, 
His prayer, though it sounds eloquent, right? It sounds nice. There's something unusual or something missing from Paul's words in this portion of Scripture. Because as we notice as Paul prays, he makes no mention about his circumstances or the circumstances of the church that he was talking to. He certainly had right to. After everything Paul had gone through, after everything church was going through, he, does, he could have prayed for those, but he doesn't bring up their circumstances at all. And there's nothing wrong with praying about circumstances. Don't hear that this morning. The Bible clearly teaches that we are to bring our petitions and our requests before the Lord. But through this prayer, Paul is modeling for us, for the believers at Ephesus, that there is something bigger, that there is something better when it comes to praying for others. Because the truth is that when most of us tend to pray for others, we typically focus our attention on the circumstances. Do we not? We tend to pray for the circumstances because in sometimes, some ways we believe that if the circumstances change, then the individual changes too. If you don't believe me, just think for a moment because we've all prayed this prayer ourselves as well. We've all at one time or another have fallen on our knees before God and said, God, if you just get me out of this circumstance, I promise you that I will never do fill in the blank again, right? We believe that if circumstances will change, it changes our behavior. But Paul understood something different. Paul understood that our circumstances in and of themselves don't necessarily make us. And here's the amazing thing, that if Paul's prayer is answered for the church in Ephesus, Change, powerful change, will happen in the lives of these believers even if the circumstances never change. Change will happen if this prayer is answered, even if nothing in the world around them looks different. And so here is what the Apostle Paul prays. It's basically broken down into two ideas. And so the first thing that he is praying is this, and this is a model for us on how we can pray for others. The Apostle Paul shows us that we are to pray that God gives others power to be changed within. And so the Apostle Paul talks about power, giving power. I pray that you have power. And this is not just some general power that Paul's praying about. He's talking about power with a purpose in mind. And that purpose he starts to spell out in verse 16. He says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with what? The power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts. And so what is it specifically then that Paul is praying for? He's talking about being strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit and what he calls our inner being or our heart. And when Paul says, says that, he's really referring to that place inside each and every one of us that nobody else can see. Some of you might call it your soul, but it's the seat of who you are. It's your personality. It's your desires, your dreams, your passions. It's what makes you come alive as an individual. And it's not tangible and it can't be measured. And Paul is saying that this is where I'm praying that power comes into, into your inner self or your hearts. And what is it that Paul prays regarding the inner self? He prays that through the power of the Holy Spirit that they would have Christ come dwell in their hearts, that Christ would come and dwell in their hearts. 
And it's interesting, I'll give you kind of um, an illustration of the power that Paul's talking about here. Now, some of you may have noticed from time to time that I like red shoes. I have accumulated now three pairs of red shoes just recently, and as I was thinking about that this week, I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm becoming more and more like my wife every day. I mean, it won't be long before you see me up here in sparkly boots. <laughs> but I, I, I have these red shoes, and I call them what I, I typically my power shoes, right? Some people have power suits. Some people have power cars. I've got my power shoes. And like a power suit, when you walk into a room with that on, it's going to make an impression. It's going to help you win friends and influence people. It's going to be a talking point. That's not the power that Paul is talking about here. Paul is not talking that we receive power from the Holy Spirit so that we can make more friends or so that we can get more out of life that we want. Instead, Paul is talking about a power to have Christ come into their hearts and make his home there. And here's the interesting thing. He uses this word dwell. And that word dwell in the ancient Greek has a very specific meaning of taking up a permanent residence or to really settle down. And so Paul is praying that others, that the other's inner being will be so filled with power and strengthened that Jesus may come and take up residence in their hearts. And so we see as Paul is modeling this that he's beginning to show us that as we pray for others, our prayer for others should not be so focused on their circumstances but more so focused on their hearts in the midst of those circumstances. That our prayers for others should be focused less on the external and more on the eternal. Less on the external and more on the eternal. And so as Paul is using this word, talking about dwelling and permanent residence, it has this idea that Christ is going to come in and take up permanent residence in our heart, but that, that begs a question. So I was studying this week, it, it just found it interesting that we know from Scripture that when a believer or somebody comes to faith in Jesus, in other words, they profess their faith in Christ, Scripture teaches us that Jesus comes and lives in their hearts. We know from Ephesians that Paul is writing to people who have made that profession of faith. So it seems strange then that Paul would pray for something that has seemingly already happened. Why would Paul pray for Christ to come dwell in their hearts when that's something that already happened? And I love how the uh, pastor and theologian D.A. Carson makes this illustration about this point. He says it's like a couple that moves, that scrapes all their money together um, to go buy a home, to put a down payment on a home that is a fixer-upper. And when they buy this home, there is much work that needs to be done. I mean, they walk in there, and the wallpaper's kind of hanging off the ceiling. There's spots on the carpet from who knows what. The basement is still full of junk from the previous owner. The kitchen looks like it's something out of the 1970s, and the furnace is on the fritz. And before this couple can begin to actually fully move in and take complete residence, there's a lot of work that has to be done in that home. And so they get to pulling up the carpet. They start putting paint on the walls, right? They pull out the olive green appliances out of the kitchen. 
They redecorate the home. They even go as far as add an extension to the home. And 25 years later, having put in all this work to remodel and redecorate the home, the husband looks at the wife and says, Honey, I love this place. This place feels like home. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Because when Christ comes and takes residence in our heart, because of all the sin, because of all of our brokenness, because of all of the junk that we go through in life, when he moves into our hearts, he finds the equivalent of just piles of junk, dated wallpaper, ugly appliances, and a leaky roof. But he moves in, and as he moves in, it's not necessarily appropriate for him to, in that moment, but as Jesus moves in, he begins to set to work, to begin to do renovations in our hearts. He begins to change things. He begins to get access to all the different rooms and take out the junk and the clutter so that as we walk more and more with Christ, as he takes up more permanent residency in our hearts, our inner being is transformed to reflect his character. And that's what Paul is praying for others. He's not praying necessarily for the changing of circumstances in that moment. He's not praying specifically that they would believe a specific truth about God. Paul's instead praying for an increasingly transformed life in the very depths of their being by the one who's taken up residence there. And so we see from Paul's prayer again in Ephesians 3 that the Bible teaches us that our prayers for others should be focused less on the transformation of their circumstances and more on the transformation of the heart in those circumstances. Pray for others less about the external and more about the eternal. And if you're looking for a way, if nobody's ever shown you how to pray for others, Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is an incredible model for us to follow. That when people come to us or we see people who are needing or hurting, we can say that I will pray for you. And specifically, we're going to pray that God fill you with the power that you may be changed from the very depths of your soul. That you may not walk out of this circumstance or situation and not look more like Jesus. That's a way that we can begin to pray for other. So that's the first request that Paul makes here. And the second one that Paul makes is related, and yet it's also different. And it's this. Paul prays that God would give others the power to grasp the love of Jesus. So on the one hand, we have Paul praying for power to change the inner self. And the second, we have Paul praying for power to grasp the love of Jesus. Look what he says here in verse 17 through 19. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all of the Lord's people, to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of Christ. To know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And once again, as we look at Paul's words, they're strange in a sense again. Just like they were unusual that they didn't mention circumstances, Paul's prayer here seems a bit strange because Paul is praying for something that in a sense is probably already true. He's praying that the believers in Ephesus and that us sitting here today would have a grasp or a knowledge of the love of Christ. 
Now, it's been my experience as a pastor, and I'm sure for those of you who have walked as a Christian, that anyone who has professed their belief in Jesus at some level has to have some kind of understanding of their love of Jesus, right? You have to know at some level Jesus loves you if you're going to profess your faith in him. And I mean, after all, our kids' ministry, maybe they're singing it right now. I mean, we start from a very early age, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. I mean, from a very early age, we're exposed to this idea of Christ's love. But there's something and a level about God's love that we don't get. Because God's love is limitless. It can never be fully grasped. And so, um, as a pastor, one of the things that I run into often and talk with people about is they have this view of God, who he's like this grumpy old man just kind of sitting up in a heaven with a scowl on his face, right? And just looking disappointingly at you with every move you make. And when we've got that view of God in our Christian faith, we tend to try and obey him less out of a response to his love for us and more out of duty and obligation. And so Paul is saying, I pray that you have the power to not only know the love of God in your heads, but to know the love of God in your hearts that surpasses all knowledge. It needs to move beyond just being an academic grasping of God's love, but something that we experience, that we taste, that we revel in to know the love of God. As I was reading a story this week and preparing for this message, I, I came across a story about a 10-year-old boy who was in the hospital. And he was really sick. He was struggling with a very serious illness and was sleeping one day and happened to wake up and saw his mother uh, sitting on the side of the bed who was sitting there holding his hand, quietly crying and praying. And in that moment, he recognized, experienced the love of his mom and he exclaimed, Mom, you really do love me. To which it was more than his mom could handle. She got up and ran out of the room sobbing. But this little boy, had you asked him a couple days earlier before this experience, do your parents love you? He probably would have said yes. But it's in this moment where he experienced and knew beyond just academic sense that his mom loved him. And this is the prayer that Paul prays for others. He prays that their knowledge of God's love would go beyond the head and into the heart of something that we experience. And he says that when that happens, when we pray this for other people, and when God moves in that way in the hearts of others, there's something that happens with that. And he says in verse 19 this, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. And what Paul is talking about here is spiritual maturity that will come as somebody begins to know and understand and grasp the love of God. In other words, growing spiritually, growing in our relationship with Christ is not something that happens necessarily at a theological center. You don't know or grow spiritually because you show up at church every Sunday and you get a gold star next to your name. We begin to grow and mature spiritually when we grasp through the power of the Holy Spirit more and more each day that my God loves me. 
And as we grasp that more and more, we become more open to his plans and purposes in our lives. And so my question for you this morning is this, church. When you think about yourself, or in the context of what we've been talking about today, praying for others, when was the last time when you prayed for somebody that you prayed they would be filled with the power to grasp God's love? When was the last time you prayed that for somebody? Because if I'm honest with you this morning, church, I can tell you that I haven't done it in a very long time, at least any time in recent memory. But that is what Paul is showing us, that this is a gift from God. The understanding, the grasping of God's love is something that comes exclusively from our Father. And it's something that we can pray and ask not only for ourselves, but as we pray for others. And so the Bible teaches us, again, that our, our focus as we pray for others should be less on the transformation of their circumstances and more on the transformation of their heart in those circumstances. That's how Paul prayed for others. It's how we should pray for others, too. Unless we're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, how is this possible or is this too much for God to accomplish? Paul concludes his words by saying this in verse uh, 19 together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide... Nope, sorry, 2021. I got off track there. I apologize. 2021 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen. As we pray this prayer for others... We do so to a God who is able to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever hope or imagine in the lives of our friends, and our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors as we pray for them. That's the God we serve. That's who a God is able to do and change, not just the present circumstances, but the heart of the person, which is eternal. So I want to invite you this week, church. Will you join me in praying this prayer for others? It's simple. You have it right there in your Bibles. You can print it with you when you go home. You can print it on your printers, cut it out, put it on your mirror, put it in your Bible, put it at your desk, put it somewhere where you're going to see it. And when you encounter a situation where somebody is in need of prayer, sure, pray for their circumstances, but more importantly, pray this prayer of Paul for them. Pray a prayer that is not only practical, is theologically correct, but a prayer that will transform not just that moment, but the eternal. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.